Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tom's Talmudish. Today, we are going to focus on a fascinating Gemara. A Gemara which, you know, to me has always been a mystery. Until today. <laughs> I don't say that with any pride. I'm actually, I'm almost ashamed. I never understood this Gemara before. We're going to solve the mystery of what, what seems to be a, a rather odd teaching of the sages. Like a little forced, unnecessary. And that'll set the stage for our understanding and appreciation of a phenomenon that sometimes our enemies can see best. I'm so glad that you joined tonight. If you do have a Gemara, a volume of Talmud, I encourage you to open and follow along so you can read the script together with me. We're on page Tes Zion, Ahmed Aleph, page 16, side A, in the large folio pages of the widely known print of Talmud Bavli, where kind of, it's an oddly shaped page. On the bottom there are very wide lines, so we're just one line above those widest lines. So in order to understand what we're about to learn, a little bit of background is necessary. If you were here in the last episode, that's great. Otherwise, I'm going to quickly bring you up to date because what we learn today can actually only be understood on the heels of what we learned about in our previous episode. Arguably, the most famous horse pageant ride ever in Persian history. So it goes like this. Haman. He's a bad man. He wants to kill all the Jewish people. He has this countrywide, empire-wide genocidal edict going into effect. Letters have been sent out three days ago already. Plans will be made during the course of the next year. And in one day, 
all of world Jewry will simply be wiped out. But Haman's not happy. Because his nemesis, his arch enemy, Mordecai the Jew, is still, he's still around. He still sees him in the halls of fame and power. He's still there in the palace compound. And so Haman decides he's got to rub him out. And in our previous episode, we learned about how extraordinary, how, how kind of off the charts this whole thing was because Haman would have waited just one more day. He could have gotten away with this. But of course, Hashem runs the world. So Haman builds a gallows. He's got a sleepless night. He can't even wait for morning. He comes to the king in the wee hours to get permission to carry out his homicidal designs. Unbeknownst to him, the king's mind is somewhere else. Before he knows it, his plans to murder, that's really what it is, his plans to murder Mordechai the next day, boomerang, in the most stunning of ways. As we learned, Haman now becomes the personal bath attendant, the barber, the man who has to groom Mordechai, who climbs quite literally on his back in order to mount this royal horse. And Haman has to lead him through the teeming streets of the nation's capital. And he's got to be crying out for everybody to hear. Such is the way the emperor of Persia values and recognizes those who are loyal to him. None of this has really anything to do with the Purim story per se. We haven't dealt at this point with the decree at all. Esther's biding her time. She's waiting for her moment. But of course, Hashem orchestrates this stunning turnaround which will segue into the miracle of the Purim story. Towards the end of Haman's horrible day, things go from bad to off the charts worse. I mean, a miserable day becomes absolutely grief-stricken and wretched. It begins with Haman's daughter catching sight of the strange scene, but she's on a rooftop and can't see clearly she figures it's got to be her father on the horse and Mordechai leading. Seeing a crucible filled with sewage, she thinks, perfect opportunity. Dad'll appreciate this. She empties the chamber pot of sewage on the man she thinks is Mordechai. But when the feces-drenched man looks up, it's actually her father. In her grief, she throws herself from the roof, and Haman sees his daughter die a horrible death before his very eyes as he's drenched in sewage. Hashem has a sense of humor. That's where things get introduced to us. So 
all of this is found, this story is found in the Megillah. This is, of course, in the sixth chapter of Megillah Esther. None of these details actually show up. All we hear about in verse 11 is Mordechai was robed in royal raiments. And he was led through the city square, the teeming streets. And Haman had to proclaim before him, This is what happens for the man who the king wants to honor. The whole story of the chamber pot and the sewage and the suicide doesn't show up in the actual scripture. Verse 12 is an odd verse. It says, and I'm reading from the Megillah, Mordechai returned to the gates, the royal gates or the king's gates. While Haman, Nidchaf el he was hurried or pushed along to his home. Ovel, a mourner. V'chafui rosh, with his head covered. So here's the thing I never really could understand. Hello, everybody. I see uh, you guys showing up, and this is great. On, on YouTube, if you have any questions, please feel free to... Type them into the discussion, into the chat, and I will try to look at that periodically and respond. So this brings us to, to today's story and the, the, the great mystery. Vayoshov, Mordechai, Esha'ar HaMelech. Mordechai returned to the king's gate. The Gemara tells us, and Rashi quotes this, so... That means it's the literal meaning. Lesako ulatanito. He returned to his sackcloth and to his fasting. Okay, our sages said it. This is a tradition they had. I never really understood what compelled our sages to say that. That is to say, what in the scripture indicates something about Sako and Tanito? Who's talking about sackcloth? Who's talking about fasting? It says Mordechai returns to Sha'ar HaMelech. Now, as we learned in our previous episode, Mordechai wasn't found by Haman in Sha'ar HaMelech. He was found in the synagogue, in the study hall surrounded by thousands of children who had been fasting for three days, weakened, but very strong in their resolve that they would stand by Mordechai and they wouldn't stop fasting, like a hunger strike, until they got good news. So if Mordechai went back to fasting, they should have said, by Yashav Mordechai, El, Mekomo, Beit Midrasho, wherever it was that Haman found him. The verse that says Mordechai went back to where he wasn't doesn't seem to make sense. 
in the terms that Rashi uses, it's the kind of verse that screams, look more deeply, like a red flag. The question, though, the answer doesn't seem really to deal with the issue. In fact, the answer seems a disconstruction of the literal meaning. Sha'ar HaMelech indicates respect, royalty, being in a, a beautiful atmosphere. Sha'ar HaMelech, the king's gate. So Ami is asking, could that not be interpreted by Yoshev sat as rather than returned? Um, the answer is no, because it says Vayoshov, and because there's a juxtaposition between where Mordechai went and where Haman went. They each went their separate ways. Vayoshov Mordechai would not be El Sha'ar HaMelech. He didn't sit to the king's gate. Maybe you would say Vayoshav Bisha'ar HaMelech. He sat in the king's gate, but doesn't say that. It says specifically by Yoshov that he returned. So I want to tell you that there's a, an interesting teaching from our sages. I say our sages loosely. Let me tell you a little bit of history about um, commentary on the Megillah, Megillah Tester. So most of the books of scripture are accompanied by Targumim. The word Targum literally means translation. The most famous Targum of all is the Targum that was written by Unculus Hager. He was a Roman linguist, a nephew of the Caesar Hadrian. His real name, or as he was called in his youth, was probably Achilles. We know that the Romans appropriated Greek culture and used many of their names. So Achilles, which is a Greek name, was the name of this extraordinary individual who probably had the equivalent of a, a PhD in English from University of Toronto or Harvard. He was an expert at language, brilliant man, and he became a Jew, not just any Jew. He became one of the most important rabbis of his time. And his great contribution was a rendering of the Torah into the ancient Aramaic, which was at the time very much a spoken language. Now, Unculus is of the genre of the sages. His words are regarded much like Mishnah, or Medrash, or Mechilta, or Safra. But Unculus doesn't write translation, which is more interpretive not simply a translation. He doesn't write translation on all the books of the Tanakh. Many, but not all. The eldest disciple of Hillel was a man whose name was Yonatan ben Uzil. Yonatan ben Uzil was a very ardent, passionate, and fervor-filled holy man. The Talmud tells us that when he would study Torah, he would generate such energy around him that in the words of the Talmud, a bird who would fly by would be scorched by the nuclear energy being generated through his Torah study. There's much to say about Yonatan ben Uzil. He authored 
a midrashic interpretation of the Torah. Whilst Unculus is seen as pshuto, the straightforward meaning of the scripture, and certainly Rashi's primary guide, Yonatan ben Ozil is much more midrashic. Now there is another Targum on the Torah and on other books of the Tanakh, which is called the Targum Yerushalmi, which was compiled around the time as the Jerusalem Talmud. We have in the book of Esther a Targum. We don't know that it's Unculus's Targum. We believe it to be the Targum Yerushalmi. Most scholars believe it's of the genre of the Talmud Yerushalmi. But there is something called the Targum Sheni. Targum Sheni means a secondary interpretation. Now, the secondary interpretation, we know for a fact, was not compiled during the time of the sages. That's the rabbis from the genre of the Mishnah, or even the Gemara. We know this because there's a letter to Rav Hai Gaon, who lives in the 9th century, or 10th century, and Rav Hai writes about this Targum, and he says, this is not from the days of Yonatan ben Uzil. Most scholars pegged this at around the 7th or 8th century. Incidentally, there is no mention of Islam, so we know it has to be written before the rise of Islam. And there are other proofs for that as well. Which puts it in the early years of what's called Geonim, or maybe Rabbanan Savuroi, which are the era, a very short time, after the close of the Talmud, before the Talmud is fully solidified. So it's kind of from our sages, but a step down, kind of from our sages. It's very interesting that the Targum Yerushalmi, the Targum Sheni, renders this entirely differently. The Targum Sheni says, Mordechai went back to Shar HaMelech, Bikar, Uvirvu Sagia. He went back with honor and greatness. Bahaman, Haman, on the other hand, went home dead embarrassed, shamed, denigrated, so much so that he even wore a hood and concealed his face. He didn't want to be seen. The Targum Sheni adds that Obeitahi, as he was walking through the streets, he had Biado in his hands, four instruments that he was carrying. He had his barber material, was a razor or hair cutting machine, scissors. He had his bath attendant little satchel. He had the rope with which he had to lead the horse. And finally, he had the trumpet that he had to sound proclaiming this is what happens to the person who loves, who the king loves, who the king wants to honor. So the way the Targum Sheni sees this the verse here is kind of juxtaposing. So what happens after the horse ride pageant? Mordechai goes on to greatness. Haman goes home dead embarrassed, ashamed, really entirely demoralized. It's almost like the verse gives you a post-mortem. Okay, the, the parade is over. Now what? <laughs> you know, the parade's over and the streets are dirty and it's no longer uh, as exciting. But here... In the postmortem or aftermath of the parade, it just keeps getting better. Mordechai has been restored to a position of power and glory and honor, 
and Haman has been entirely denigrated. It seems to make sense. Like, this verse is a juxtaposition of Haman and Mordechai. To Debbie's question, is Aramaic a dialect of Hebrew? No. Aramaic is a different language. It is a Semitic language. It shares many of the you know, words are similar. Perhaps uh, as a lame, a lame, imperfect metaphor, you could say uh, English and Spanish are both Latin languages. Maybe even in Spanish and French. So the question that I always, I always bothered me, this has bothered me for a long time since I'm a kid. I know what you're thinking. So if it bothered me, why didn't I look into it? I don't know. It's one of those things, you know, kind of say, oh, that's weird. <laughs> I just, I never taught this Gemara. I learned the most from teaching you. I'm grateful for your participation. Uh, it's not unique. The, the Gemara says, You learn the most from your students. I know I can't sell you a bill of goods. I have to make sense out of this if I'm supposed to teach it to you. So I just keep working at it until Hashem opens my head and I figure this out. Um, I think I figured this out. I think you're going to love this. So the Gemara says, Vayoshav Mordechai al-Shar HaMelech. Now I'm reading from the Gemara. I left two words out, and I'll soon tell you why. Mordechai returned to the king's gate. Omar Rav Sheshet, Rav Sheshet said, Sheshov l'sako l'tanito. He returned, he went back to his sackcloth and his fasting. What, is, what does that mean even? Now, Rashi doesn't give us an explanation. He, he kind of just says, l'tanito. He says, fasting? Wasn't that done already? He says, no, this is Yom Shlishi Litanit Hayah. They had taken upon themselves to fast for three days. That's what Esther asked. She said, I want you to fast for three days. Rashi follows the more common approach that the fast began on the 14th day of Nisan. We call that day Erev Pesach. So there was no eating on Erev Pesach. And then there was no eating on the first day of Pesach. And this happened on the second day of Pesach. And the sun hadn't set yet. And they may not have been keeping two days of Yom Tov. I think we spoke about that in the previous episode. So they're still fasting. And Mordechai goes back to fasting. As if nothing happened. He was just led on a horse and given all the honor and the glory in the world. And just went back to fasting. Like a quiet, humble Spiritual little Jew, little rabbi. So Rashi here gives uh, some troubleshoots. He said, hey, one second. Masha Omar HaMikro, the fact that the, Torah, that the, the scripture says, Liyom Etmol, about yesterday. Yesterday is the day that Esther made her queen's gambit. She showed up in Achashverosh's throne room uninvited. And it says, Shlishi, and Rashi quotes the word. As it says, Vayi Bayom Ashlishi was on the third day. Vatil Bash Esther Malchos, Esther robed herself in royalty. So Rashi says, Yom Shlishi Lishiluach Haratzimhaya. That was the third day from, of the messengers being dispatched. The messengers were dispatched on the 13th day of Nisan. So three days later, Esther 
approaches the king. And she asks him to come for dinner. She says, I want to have dinner with the devil. Okay, we talked about that already, and we'll be able to better understand what Esther's strategy was soon. At any rate, Rashi talks about this idea of the third day, but he doesn't say a word about the incongruity of what kind of drasha is this? You know, if you learn Megillat Esther, and I have, Baruch Hashem, many, many classes on Megillah Esther, where we're not finished yet, but we will come back to it this year annually for almost 10 years. And I've been teaching Megillat Esther. And Baruch Hashem, we've made our way through almost 80% or more. If you learn the Megillah, you'll, you'll see that every single verse, every single verse is filled with seeming inconsistencies, things that beg for explanation. And that's what we do. We study the Megillah. The Gemara doesn't talk about all of the seeming inconsistencies. The Gemara doesn't even talk about some of the most glaring inconsistencies. There are outright contradictions. Oh, our rabbis have a lot to say about it. We are the recipients of millennia of Torah teaching and tradition. We can find answers to Baruch Hashem, everything, if we just keep searching. But the Gemara doesn't talk about that. The Gemara's comments are sparing. The Talmud presents the Talmudic expositions on the Megillah. That's what this collection of Gemara, this sugya, this topic is about. Of all the things that required elucidation, by Yosha of Mordechai Ashar HaMelech, it's not on the top. It doesn't even make it to the top five. And the drasha is, it's, it's just like odd. It doesn't seem to jibe with the literal meaning. So, you know, if you would ask me, if I, if I was Rashi, I would follow the Targum. I would say, Vayosh of Mordechai, I would have said, hey, Ashar HaMelech, Bikar, Gdula, V'chavod. No, Rashi says, Sako Taniso. Sako Taniso. So why does Rashi say that? The Sifsich HaChamim, which is a commentary, a super commentary on Rashi, says, The problem here was, why is, why is the scripture even telling us where Mordechai went? This is not the story of Mordechai right now. It's the story of Haman. He is the chief protagonist in these pages. He's the villain. The spotlight's on Haman, not on Mordechai. Mordechai is almost like an, like an incidental here. It's about Haman's degradation. It's about Haman's plans going up in smoke and everything boomeraming. As the Sifz Chacham says, The scripture's purpose here is to tell you about Haman's downfall. This is about Haman's downfall. Mordechai's star will rise. This isn't the rise of Mordechai. So, if it's not about Mordechai, why is the scripture telling us about Mordechai's return? 
And then the Sifzichon ad-libs Rashi's commentary from the Talmud about the third day. So here's, here's a, a very salient point. The Sifzichachamim is telling us we can't follow the approach of the Targum because that's not the straightforward meaning of the scripture. The scripture is telling us a story of downfall, Haman's downfall. What does this have to do with Haman's downfall? Well, I'm not really sure, but how is Mordechai's going back to Sacco Vitanito any more effective in illustrating Haman's downfall? In fact, if you ask me, the Targum Sheni's approach kind of makes more sense because Haman's downfall is highlighted by Mordechai's rise. The two part ways. Mordechai goes to the king's gates. He's riding high. Haman is lying low. He's covering his face in shame. He doesn't even want to be seen. So yeah, it's about Haman or Haman, but it's framed with Mordechai's honor that further highlights Haman's downfall. Sako Taniso? What does that have to do with Haman's rise or downfall? The Ben Ishchai, in his commentary, Ben Yehiyada, says something very, very interesting. If you have a, a Gemara, go back inside, and I'm going to read it to you from the inside. The Gemara tells us the story that isn't able to be seen, at least not overly, in the Scripture. The Scripture does not allude to this. The story of Haman's daughter, the story of the sewage the story of her suicide. So the Gemara says, Shakla Atzitza, the Beis she took a chamber pot. Vishadisa Reisha Davua, she emptied its contents on the head of her father. Doluyene, he looked up. Vachasa Davua, she saw it's her father. Naflo she fell off the roof. And she landed. I don't want to get into the details. It wasn't pretty. Mesa, that was a fatal fall. You know what they say about the skydiving? If you don't succeed the first time, don't try again. She jumped from the roof. In front of Haman's very face. So the Gemara now says two very important words. And that is what is written. Well, that is why it's written. These are two very important words. It's almost as if to say, where in the Megillah is the story alluded to? And the Gemara says it is. It is alluded to. And that is why it says that Mordechai went back to the king's gate. It is. <laughs> why, pray tell? Why is Haino Dixiv? What about Mordechai's going back to the king's gate? Explains or 
gives us an allusion to the story of the sewage and the suicide. Oh, the Gemara says, Omar Avsheshes, because Avsheshes said, it's not the king's gate, it's Sakevetanisoi. So the Ben Yehuda says like this. He says, there's something about the story that doesn't make any sense. Okay, it's a, it's a rooftop. We're not talking about uh, a skyscraper. Five stories, maybe ten stories. They didn't build such tall buildings once upon a time. You could still get a pretty good picture of what's going on in the ground. How'd you make a mistake? Well, there's a chance that Haman wasn't exactly walking with his head held high. He wasn't very happy about this assignment. For all we know, he might have been wearing a hood. We hear in verse 12 that he went home with his face covered. He may have had his face covered all along. Hey, if I was Haman, I'd cover my face. So she couldn't see who was leading this pageant. But couldn't she see who was riding? How did she not see Mordechai? You know what it looks like when somebody rides a horse? I mean, like a royal horse. So Ben Yoda suggests something unbelievable. He says, Mordechai was fasting. In the previous episode, we learned that Mordechai didn't even have the strength to climb onto the horse. He's an old man, by the way. He hasn't eaten in three days. He's very weak. You take an old man who hasn't eaten in three days, and you put him on horseback, and you lead him through the streets, and it's not the winter. It's, it's hot outside. This is the Middle East. We're talking Pesach. It's, it's not an easy situation. Ah, but the Ben Yehuda says, Mordechai should have had such adrenaline. He's victorious. He has overcome his enemies. Hashem has demoted and denigrated Haman. And he's riding a royal horse. Surely that gave him a second wind. Surely he would have had at least the ability to, to, to ride high or to hold his head high. You know, adrenaline is powerful stuff. There's a member of our community, a very unique fellow, who is a Holocaust survivor. He was found as a child in the concentration camp, in the Buchenwald concentration camp. Nobody knows how he survived. It's like Nobody, nobody has the story. The child was found, soiled. I think he was three years old, in dirty diapers. And this child, his life is saved. And he was one of the soldiers under Matagur's command who had the privilege of liberating Harabayat. Imagine, imagine those two extremes. A child, concentration camp survivor, liberates Harabayat. He's a very special person. So, so Gershon told me that, he told me, I asked him many times about this experience. 
He said, at a certain point, you, we hadn't eaten, we hadn't slept, but we had endless energy. He said, it's adrenaline. Just, you're just functioning on fumes. So the Ben Yehuda says, but what if Mordechai didn't have any adrenaline? What if he wasn't enjoying this horse ride? What if he was still eminently anxious about the circumstances, the situation? He's still fasting. Why was he still fasting? Because the decree wasn't rescinded. We're talking about global holocaust in one day. Mordechai has the weight of the world on his shoulders. This was almost like an unwanted diversion. He's in the middle of davening. He didn't want to ride a horse. So the Ben Yehuda suggests if he didn't have adrenaline, if he didn't know that Hashem's miracles had already begun to unfold, and he didn't, what's the proof? Because Vayashov, he went right back to the king's gate. Vayashov says the Gemara Amreb Sheshes, he went back. He went back. Sheshov l'sakay ulatan nisoy. When Mordechai first sounded the alarm, his proverbial Paul Revere moment, how did he do it? Not so much with his words, but with his demeanor. The Megillah tells us that he rend his clothes. He, he wore sackcloth and he was fasting. The sackcloth and ashes positively shook up the Jewish community when they saw their revered and beloved Rebbe walking like a, like a beggar wearing those kind of clothes. They said, what's going on? Mordechai doesn't want the people to let the guard down and say, oh, you know, everything's fine now. Because it's not fine. In fact, I found something so interesting. The Ma'am Loes chooses to follow the approach of the Targum Sheni, but he augments it. And I don't know what his source is. The Targum Sheni tells us that Esther sent food for Mordechai, which is a problem altogether. Like, how do you make this Gemara work, so to speak, with the Targum Sheni? So the Ma'amlois, and again, I don't know what his sources are. Usually he sources everything, doesn't give us a source for this. He says he removed the royal clothes and he reaccepted the fast again. He put the sackcloth back on. And he went back to the king's gate because it was a public thoroughfare because he wanted to make a point. And he says, He went about doing what he did the first time. He said, everybody back to Shoal. This isn't over yet. Because Ha'igrot lonit batlu. Imam Lois's words, the matter of fact is, the letters hadn't yet been rescinded. This he quotes from the Ein Yaakov. And he says something amazing. 
Mordechai's just been riding a royal horse. A royal horse ride, a pageant, a parade, it's wonderful. Mordechai thought to himself, this is terrible. I bet you what Achashverosh is doing is making sure to pay off his old debts so I can't kind of lobby and say, hey, your royal highness, I did save your life, you know. Think about it. If Achashverosh owes Mordechai, that's a good place to be. That's a good place to be. <laughs> you know, this is a, a longer story. But uh, our Rav, the Rav in Toronto, Rav David Shachat, told me once about a fascinating thing that, that he did. He helped bring Svarim back for the Rebbe. And the Rebbe said to him, Eich kumich mekleraigelt. I owe you one. So Rabbi Shachat said to the Rebbe, Chas v'sholem. No, 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 no. So I said to him, Rabbi Shachat, what, what were you thinking? He says, yeah, someday, the Rebbe says he owes you. <laughs> someday I'm going to need it. <laughs> when Man Malkit Abundance says I owe you, you're, you're in a good place. Achashverosh owed him. Mordechai was happy that he had never been rewarded. He was delighted. He was hoping that Achashverosh could be reminded of the story. And then he could cash in his chips. He could say, you know, I saved your life. Please save my nation. He knew that wasn't going to be an easy sell. But Mordechai also knew that first they had to have Hashem's grace. And then they could do various mechanisms. Mordechai says, this is not good. I didn't ask for this honor. I didn't need or want it. So now, he doesn't know me anymore. We're really in trouble. And the Ben Yoda suggests, that explains the story. Now we know why Haman's daughter couldn't see who was riding the horse. She says, for all you know, Mordechai was practically laying on the horse, barely able to keep his head up. So what she see? She sees a guy in a hoodie blowing a trumpet, she can't hear what he's saying. She's, I don't know, 10 stories up. She sees somebody on the horse. He seems to be very relaxed. He's not riding up and tall, but she can't see him. Can't see his face. Can't see who he is. In her mind, it must be Haman. All right. So the first thing the Gemara does, and this, and this is what is written. In other words, this whole story of the mistaken identity could only be understood by clarifying that Mordechai was not happy, that things were not okay in Shushan. He was still worried. He's still in the middle of fasting. So it gets even more interesting now. Because, because what we're about to focus on is the advice that Haman is getting from his friends who become all of a sudden very wise. And you're going to say, well, that's not obvious. You have to be a, a Hamanite friend to know that? Isn't it obvious? And the answer is no. It wasn't obvious. It wasn't even obvious to Mordechai. It wasn't obvious at all. So Haman says, okay, this is just like a, a little bump in the road. 
a little diversion of my career. But I'm going to bounce right back and get rid of my enemies and reign supreme. And Haman's friends say, no, no. The jig is up. You're finished. And how do they know that? Because they see who Mordechai is. Because they see that Mordechai is a man who's not moved by all the honor and glory. The Eshkol HaKofer says, look at the difference of Haman coming home from the first party. How proud he was. How arrogant he felt. How he couldn't wait to tell everybody about his honor and his glory. He gathered everybody together and he told them about all of his greatness. But he said, you know, there's one thing in my life that isn't right. That Mordechai is still there. Eshkola Kofra says, take a look at Mordechai. He just received, literally, Kvod Malachim, the honor due to a king. And, Lo klal mikol oto hakavod. He did not have an ounce of pridefulness from all the honor that had been afforded. The polar opposite of Haman. Instead, he simply remained focused on his responsibility to Am Yisro. In 1967, at the Purim Fabrengen, the Rebbe spoke about these couple of verses. And he said something truly fascinating. Haman, Haman said that the Jewish people are scattered throughout the entire kingdom. The king doesn't need them. They don't make much of a contribution. Economically, the country won't suffer. Politically, nothing to lose. Rub him out. Get rid of him. Our existence was, and in many ways is, so tenuous. And yet, everything turns around. Not because we have lobbyists, influence, political clout, Everything turns around because there is a Mordechai who shows up in Shar HaMelech in sackcloth and ashes, who walks through the streets and inspires his fellow brethren, his brothers and sisters, to return to Hashem. What does that lead to? The story of Purim is that Mordechai's walking through the streets in utter humility, crying out to his brothers and sisters to come home to Hashem, leads to Mordechai being paraded through the streets as the king's best friend. In 
And the Rebbe said, Und das als farvas. Why? Because you're talking about a Mordechai who goes right back, Sheshov This was a very, very public event. It was known. If you went back to the yeshiva, to the Beit Medrash, nobody would know about it. It wouldn't have meant anything. The Megillah makes a point of telling us, Vayoshov Mordechai al Sha'ar HaMelech. Shav He went back to being the holy Yid he was. And where does that lead us? That not only explains how Haman's daughter made the mistake, it's critical to understand the next verse with the next scene where Haman comes home, as you will see. So with this, the Gemara now continues. Let's keep in mind the words of the Rebbe. This is all because, not in spite, because of Mordechai's spiritual devotion. That's what moves the Gentile world. That's what moves the enemies when they see that we are loyal to Hashem. That's the lesson. That's the message. So the Gemara says now, Haman is, as it were, pushed into his house. Why is he being pushed into his house? It's as if to say that when a person is in a sense of despondency, when a person is in a sense uncomfortable about his situation, he feels like everybody's pushing him. He feels like everybody's looking at him. He feels like he's being hurried. You know, you feel this pressure. Haman feels this terrible pressure. He feels as if he's being cast aside, pushed aside. He's a man who was used to walking in the street and see everybody bow to him. And now he's hoping people aren't noticing him, like a celebrity wearing sunglasses, hoping nobody notices. He's reeking from sewage. He stinks to the high heavens. Just had a terrible day. He just saw his daughter splattered in front of him. I, I actually can't even imagine this. I can't even imagine how the man is walking. So he's running, he's rushing home. He's Ovil, he's a mourner. So the obvious question is, what, how, how did he become a mourner? Where does mourning come from? That's the Hainu Dechsiv. That's, again, this verse is necessary. Another part of the verse, so the first part of the verse, Ben Yehiyada says, explains how she made the mistake. The second part of the verse emphasizes that he was an Ovil. He was a mourner. Chafui Rosh. And his head was covered. Why was his head covered? So here the, the commentaries are kind of divided here. Some say because of his mourning. Others say no. The Ovil was because he was an Ovil. The Chafui Rosh because of everything else that happened. He was dead embarrassed and ashamed of what had gone on during the course of the entire day. It sounds like the Ovil and Chafui Rosh go together. So this is all in a state of mourning. 
the Gemara says, Ovel Albitoi, he was in mourning for his daughter who just died in front of him. And his head was all covered up, because of what happened to him. Now what is the Eiroloi? Is the Eiroloi referring to what we said before? Or is the Eiroloi referring to his daughter's horrific death? Now, don't get too sympathetic. We're talking about Hitler here. This is the evil, horrid, unspeakable individual who wanted to destroy every single Jew. This couldn't happen to a nicer guy. But we're trying to get into Haman's head here. And Haman is a very smart cookie. Shrewd, ruthless, a psychopath. He's got to figure out his next move. You see, if this is the beginning of the end, he's got to make himself scarce. He's got to go into hiding. He's got to try to save his skin. But if this is just an anomaly, just some whacked out day, and, you know, it's something that went wrong, but, but things are going to be back to where they were before, well, then Haman's got to just persevere, get through the storm. So the next verse in the Megillah tells us, Vayisaper Haman lezeresh so Haman calls his friends, calls all of his friends together. And he calls his wife and his friends. It's interesting to note that when he wanted to boast, he brought his friends and his wife. His friends were more important to him. But now he needed support. And he knew he could count on his wife more so than his friends. But he still needed support. He wants, he wants people to tell him it's going to be okay. He needs to be reassured. Now, if we look in the Megillah, the Megillah tells us in verse, in verse 12, the Megillah says, Vayisaper Haman, Haman tells his wife, Zeresh Ishto, all of the things that had happened to him. And his advisors, his wise men, they said, Oh, if this guy is Jewish, if this Mordechai, Asher Ata, Asher Hachiloi Salin Pelofanov, if, if this man, this Mordechai, who you are falling before him, if he is Jewish, forget about it. No foil people, you're going to fall, you will surely fall before him. Now, the whole verse makes no sense for me. If he's Jewish, his name is Mordechai Yehudi. He's like the most famous Jew in the Persian Empire. If he's Jewish. Like Mordechai wasn't known, it's like, like seriously? Like, if I, if I go somewhere, the, you know, people have never said to be, excuse me, are you, are you Jewish? I'm like a visible Jew. Mordechai was like the most visible Jew in the Persian Empire. These are wise men, and they said, listen, you know, 
If he's Jewish, then you're in trouble. Very strange. But before we get to that, the Gemara points out that in the same verse, a group of people are called different names. The Gemara says, They're called his friends. And they're called his wise men. So, uh, which one is it? Is it his wise men or is it his friends? Did he call his buddies or did he call his advisors? Those are two different sets of people. So the Gemara says something very interesting. Omar Rabbi Yechanan, the senior sage of the Jerusalem Talmud, was sometimes considered to be a member of the Mishnah genre. Omar Rabbi Yechanan, kol ha'oimer devar chachma, anybody who says something wise, afilu ba'omasayilam, even if he's not Jewish, nikra chacham. Then he's called wise. If you say something wise, then you're called wise. What? If you say something wise, you're called wise. Okay. I'm glad we had Rabbi Yechelen to tell us this because, like, uh, I mean, otherwise, what would we say? What in heaven does that mean? What, what is his teaching? The question was, you call them friends, then you call them wise. So Rabbi Yechanan says, aha, if somebody says something wise, even if they're not Jewish, they're still called wise. It's really, has to be understood. Rashi doesn't say anything. So I found a fascinating tshuva of the Khatam Sofer. You know, if you want to look on a level of drush, there's a, the Sfasema says that uh, when Haman was popular, they were his friend. Now Haman's not popular. Ah, they said, we can be wise. We can be your advisors. We're not your friend anymore. Okay, like in a level of pshat, that doesn't really do anything for us. It doesn't, so to speak, work in a level of pshat. This is found at the very end of the Chatam Sofer's Chuvas uh, his response on Erechaim. So he talks there about a man whose name was Atniel ben Knaz. It's a fascinating figure. And he brings, the, uh, during the morning of Moshe Rabbeinu, there was uh, enormous amounts of Torah information that were forgotten, and he restores the Torah information. He has this whole discussion about whether he was always wise or had his moment of wisdom. The Chetam Sofer promulgates this idea that a person who has a moment of intuition could be called wise, even if they weren't wise the whole life. They still become, at least at that time, they're functioning as, with wisdom. And, and it can be defining because we are intrinsically wise, intrinsically predisposed to Torah knowledge. This is kind of the gist of what he says. And then he says something very interesting. Based on all this, I can explain to you, he says, something that the Gemara tells us, which on the surface is odd. Rabbi Yochanan said, 
you should know that these people who said something wise, they could be called wise. He says, Pshita, isn't that obvious? Why shouldn't they be called wise? What, you have to be Jewish to be wise? That's ridiculous. Do you know that we, the Jewish people, have a religious way, if you will, to look at everything? That is to say, we mention Hashem all the time. If Jewish people don't mention God's name, they're not behaving Jewishly. We're supposed to mention Hashem in every single experience we have. So what happens if you meet a brilliant person? You know, like a, I don't know, Stephen Hawkins. The greatest mind of a century. The bracha, the blessing we recite. Because we acknowledge that, yeah, this comes from Hashem. The blessing is, that God has given of His wisdom to a human being. So, we don't have this parochial perspective that you have to be Jewish to be wise. We even recite a bracha when we meet somebody wise. It has nothing to do with his being Jewish. He's a human being, and his wisdom comes from God. And meeting him can be a religious experience. Religion means that every single thing that I experience is experienced through the filter of my relationship with Hashem. So whatever happens, I see as an act of God. That's a Jewish way to look at the world. So the Chatam Sofer says, okay, of course, of course, non-Jews can be wise. What is the Chiddush? What is the novelty of Rabbi Yechina? So the Chatam Sofer says, you're missing the point. The point is, we the Jewish people are predisposed to Torah wisdom. And that is to say, even if we aren't particularly wise or learned, we might, at any given point, have a Torah intuition, a glimmer of Torah creativity, an understanding in Torah, that typically one would have to have a tremendous amount of background for. But the truth is that by virtue of Marasha Kehilas Yaakov, of our eternal inheritance of Torah, we're always connected to the Torah. Rabbi Yochanan says, a human being is naturally predisposed to wisdom. That's the defining hallmark of a human being. There are people who behave stupidly. There are people who behave inanely. But deep down, every person is prone to wisdom. Do you ever hear the expression, necessity is the mother of invention? That is to say that when people have an enormous amount of duress or a challenge before them, suddenly they can have a light bulb moment. The genius is a person who doesn't require that kind of pressure. 
His mind works like 60 all the time. But everybody can have a moment of genius. That's what Rabbi Echanan is saying. Shema Mino says the Chassam Sefer Lehoyu Chachomim Be'etzem. They were not wise per se. They were Hamanic people, bad people, haters, Hitlerites, Haman's friends. But at this moment, they had a sudden clarity. They had a sudden wisdom. Haman called them for support. What he got was advice. What was their advice to him? They said to him, if this guy is Mizera HaYehudim, if this guy is fueled by his Yiddishkeit, if that's what this is about, you're up the creek. Let's go back now to the Gemara. Let's, let's look at it through the Chassam Sofa's words, and especially as illuminated by the Rebbe's teaching in 1967, because I think this is going to come together in an incredible way. So the Gemara says now, what does it mean, in Mizerah Yehudim? Amrulay, this is what they really said to him. Yeah, we know he's Jewish, but find out what his pedigree is. Where does he come from? I mishar shvatim. If he comes from other tribes, you'll, you'll, you, can, you, can get, you can get over this. You'll, you'll, you can contend. But if he's from the tribe of Judah, or Binyamin, which he was, by the way, or Ephraim and Menashe, Binyamin and Ephraim and Menashe are all the children of Rachel, because Ephraim and Menashe are Yosef's children. He says, then in that case... You can't go up against him. Why? Yehuda, they said, Your hand is at the nape of your enemies. Yehuda, once he goes after his enemies, the enemies are finished. Yehuda's metaphorized as a lion. Lions sometimes reticent to act. But once the lion is provoked, once he stretches his arm forth, you're finished. So the Gemara says, okay, that's Yehuda. The Enoch and the other ones. Ah, the Chsiv Bahu, it's written about them. And this takes us to the 80th Psalm, the third verse. Lefnei Ephraim u'binyamin so David HaMelech says, Before Ephraim, Binyamin, and Menashe, King David prays, Rouse your might. Rouse your might. And then, Come, so to speak, for it is upon you to save us. In other words, rouse your might, 
for your might is there for them when they need your salvation means even if they are unworthy. So we know that the Jewish people hadn't been behaving nicely. They'd abandoned Hashem. They went to that party. But they said, if he's from this tribe, we have a tradition that even if they aren't deserving, that once it's rouse your might, means that Hashem will defend them even if they aren't deserving. So what is the meaning of this? Like what, what is, how, how did they get that wise all of a sudden? So the Rebbe suggested it has everything to do with Mordechai going back to Sakai Vitanisai. He said, Imizera Hayehudim. If this is the spirit, this is where he comes from, it's almost as if, if this is who he is, a Yehudi. A Yehudi means a person who bows his head in submission to Hashem. Then in that case, you're finished. Not fill people. You will only fall. You will never be able to recover. The Rebbe said at that Fabrengen, sometimes a non-Jew can see what a Jew doesn't want to see. I have seen this time and again. Our detractors will respect a Jew who respects himself. They can smell it when you're ashamed of your Jewishness. Our enemies know and intuitively understand when we're turning our backs on who we are, and they have a begrudging respect for a Yid who stands tall and is ready to be counted. That is the story of Mordechai and Haman. That is what these people suddenly got really wise about. It wasn't obvious. It wasn't obvious because Mordechai went back to fasting. But Haman's friends had a moment of wisdom and epiphany. They saw with clarity. And we're speaking about the Jewish people here. Mordechai is a Jew who's la yichre If that's the kind of Jew we have on our hands, la yachlesle. The Gemara now introduces us to another kindred, but actually different teaching. Dorash Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eloi. Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eloi said, Why is it that Haman's friends or advisors use the verbiage, Nofoil Tipa? What do we have this double, so to speak, fall? And so, Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eloi said, Umazu, they had a moment of clarity. They said, this nation, Meshula la'afar, 
at times is metaphorized as the dust of the ground. And at the same time, we are metaphorized in the image of the stars. Both are told to Avram Avinu. The Gemara says, When we fall, Yordin ad Afar. We fall down to the very dust itself. The ashes of Auschwitz. But when we rise, it's Adlikhoven. We reach the stratosphere. In other words, this is extreme stuff. There's no middle of the road mediocrity. When we fall, we fall hard. The Mephershim point out that Haman, Haman, the enemy of the Jewish people, who was planning genocide against us, was a slave. A slave of Mordechai. We fell into the hands of the dregs of society. What was Hitler? A house painter. Who were the guards in the concentration camps? The lowest scum. The lowest, literally the lowest people. The talented soldiers were on the front. When we fall, we fall very hard. But they said, this is not normal. This, this stunning turnaround, this boomerang, he was supposed to be swinging from the gallows today, and instead you were leading him through the street and you end up doused in sewage? They said, no, 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 this, this is not by happenstance. They had clarity. They saw what we didn't. Our Rebbe told us, keep fasting. The Gzeira isn't over. Our enemies already had clarity. There's a fascinating medrash on the words that form the maiden prophecy of our father Jacob. Yaakov Avinu sinks into a slumber under a starry night on what will be the site of the future Beis HaMikdash. And there he sees a sweeping image, a ladder rooted in the ground, reaching into the highest of heavens, and angels are ascending and descending. And he hears the voice of Hashem. God introduces himself to Father Jacob. And he said, Your progeny will be like the dust of the ground. And they will powerfully spread forth Yoma, Vakedma to the west and to the east, Tsafoina Venegba to the north and the south. The Medrash Rabbah in the book of Shmois in chapter 25 comments on these very words Sikusim Nosan Hakodesh Baruchu Liyakov. God gave measures to our father Jacob. It's almost like a, this is the operating system. He said, 
When when we reach the lowest level, the dust of the earth, at that moment, will come the Ufaratsta, will come the powerful, incredible explosion of goodness. The Rebbe once spoke about this, this Medrash and he said, it seems when the Medrash talks about reaching the dregs, the lowest level of the ground, it's a terrible thing. Then will come Ufaratsta. Out of the ashes of Auschwitz, we rebounded and reclaimed our homeland, you could say. Out of a terrible, unimaginable disaster. Then the Rebbe said something positively unreal, which I would like to humbly suggest illuminates and explains this Gemara. Based on the words of the Or HaChaim, who explains at the very beginning of the Parsha that Vayetze Yaakov, that this idea of Yaakov going out of Be'er Sheva also serves to metaphorically illustrate the descent of a Neshama. And why does a soul leave its glorious place in heaven to inhabit an earthly terrestrial reality? Why is it embodied in a material sense? There's this idea which is talked about so often in the literature of Hasidus. Yerida zoi tzarechaliyah. This descent is for the purpose of an appropriate ascent that will follow. And the Rebbe suggests that this is the deeper meaning of the Medrash. When an Ashama, so to speak, humbles itself, when it comes down to the level of subservience of bittel, like nafshi ka'ofer la keltia, like my soul, like we say in our davening in the end of our amida every single day, thrice. Like we say that my soul will be like the dust of the earth. It represents the highest level of humility, the greatest form of subservience to Hashem. That's when we merit the ufaratzda. It's a blessing. It's not a curse. Could there be a greater humbling of oneself? Could there be a greater act of subservience to be plucked from the midst of the base Medrash by a hateful prime minister who is plotting a holocaust, the genocide of the Jewish people? He has to take Mordechai out of his Torah study and he has to cleanse him and bathe him and give him a haircut and dress him, and he climbs on his back. And it doesn't affect Mordechai in the least bit. As they say, it doesn't go to his head. All the honor, all the glory. Mordechai's response turns right around, goes back, That's the wisdom of Haman's friends. They said, if that's who he is, Im Mizera Hayahudim, 
Nafal Tipal, they said, then you will surely fall. The Nafal Tipal ultimately represents the great heights that the Jewish people will rise to, which will happen in corollary with the tremendous fall of Haman. And they said there's no question. His rise will spell your fall. They saw Mordechai's star rising. They saw the trajectory beginning. And they knew that there was no hope left. So getting advice like this, what should Haman do? He should run and save his skin. Ah! The very next verse. All of a sudden they came and they said, Haman, we gotta go! He said, I gotta go. I didn't take a shower yet. I stink like sewage. We gotta go! The queen is waiting! He doesn't have a chance to plan his next move. He's so disoriented. He saw his daughter splattered before him. The most miserable, wretched day ever he could possibly imagine. He stinks like a sewer. And before, and then he gets this terrible news from his advisors, from his wise men, and then, Malamed, this teaches us, they brought him in a state of disorientation. Esther could have planned for this moment all she wanted. The fact remains, this was her moment, but it's ordained by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Haman, the most powerful man in the kingdom, is so vulnerable. Esther doesn't even know how vulnerable he is. Because ultimately, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Almighty God, orchestrated everything. To be continued, and I hope you found this Gemara insightful, uplifting. I certainly found it eye-opening. It, uh, as I said, it solved this mystery. It gives us insight into who Mordechai was and who we have to try and be. Because we're not supposed to read the Megillah as ancient history. Our sages wanted us to understand the story, the narratives of the Megillah as our roadmap. The way for us to be able to move forward and to merit Ka'ula Yeshua. May we indeed rise to the very stars. May we merit together to see the coming of Mashiach and the most wonderful miracles unfold in real time, in our time. Bimheira will be Amenu Amen. Thank you so much for joining this evening. Please, I'd appreciate it if you could like, share, and if you haven't yet or have friends who haven't yet, please subscribe youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. I look forward to seeing you back next week. God bless you. Have a beautiful evening.